Hi, I'm David Samuel, and you are listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 94 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molle, your host, and this week I speak to David Samuel. David is an experienced tour coach who's currently working with Britain's Liam Brody and Marcus Daniel, who we had on the show a few weeks back on episode 86. David also runs the Mindset College, which is a top-class mental skills program available to coaches and athletes worldwide. We talk a lot about Dave's experiences and touch heavily on the mental side of the game. We will also have an upcoming free webinar with David and I'll give you details on that at the end. Before we start, a shout out to our podcast sponsors, Slinger, who make the awesome portable ball machine, the Slinger Bag. Head over to slingerbag.com to get all the info or check out their Instagram account, Slinger Bag, to see it in use all over the world. Okay, let's go. Hi, David. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? Fantastic. We've actually got blue skies today. It's about a minus one, but it's a, it's a beautiful day. So uh, that always helps when the sun's shining. And have you had any snow? We just had some uh, sleet yesterday, but nothing stuck. So it's a bit, uh, bit weird at this time of year. Yeah, same with here. And I saw in Europe as well, they're getting like sun, rain, sleet or snow, depending where you are, hailstones, and then back to sun again. It's crazy. But let's hope we're transitioning yeah. into, transition into early summer. Tell me, I've done a bit of research on you. People have said to me plenty of times, you need to get Dave on, you need to get Dave on. I get your emails from the Mindset College and also a friend of ours, James Klusky, had you, you gave a talk for him. He said that was a really good talk and he pushed me to get you on here. And I heard you, Dan, had you on the Soto podcast also, which is great. But That's correct. From what I gathered, you're a very busy man. And how do you how do you do it all between coaching, work, mindset college? You say you're not whip bad anymore, but you're consulting there. Tell me, how do you put all them pieces together? Um, I think, I mean, first of all, you've got to love what you do. So I don't really see much of what I do as work. Some of it, some of it's a bit of a grind, but most of it is is just a lot of fun. And I think. That, you know, obviously having a good to-do list. I mean, it is so simple. But uh, I, I really do think that the electronic calendar helps a lot because I can, you know, send out invites for people to book time. And if I need time to do other things, I can, I can just book it out. And you can go quite far into the future without having to worry about forgetting something. So I'm getting a lot better at, you know, immediately when a request comes in or something comes in that I'd like to do, that I put it straight in the diary and then it's blocked off. So even if it's, you know, two or three weeks in advance, when I look on a Sunday night what my week looks like, then I then if, you know, if I get a last minute call or something like that, I can see the gaps. So it's it's really just organizing. But Honestly, I'm also not one of these that that lives to a very strict schedule. I think that really comes from tennis. I mean, you know, on 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 Friday I'm going to to Belgrade to join Liam there for a couple of weeks. And and those weeks are are very different because, you know, in terms of my private consultancy because I have a number of private clients on Zoom consultancies, you know, they all just have to know that on on tournament weeks 
things can move around a hell of a lot because I never know the schedule until the night before. Okay, you know, Sunday at least you know whether it's a, <laughs> whether it's a Monday or Tuesday start, yeah. but that's about as good as it gets. Uh, and, of course, into the summer it gets even more difficult because, you know, usually I'll, I'll, I'll schedule things sort of between 6 and 8 a.m. in the morning and, and that works, uh, you know, quite well for, you know, my clients in Australia and in the, uh, in the East. And then in the evenings, which works very well for my U.S. clients uh, and the U.K. clients just <laughs> try and put in yeah. as and when I can, on, usually on a, on a day off. But, yeah, you know, obviously in the summer, play can go until 9 p.m. at night. So if they're scheduled late, you know, usually I just have to cancel the evening sessions then which means when I come back, it's really busy because I have to catch those up. You know, overall, it's just a basic organization. And and I don't get stressed about it because, you know, if, if something's not done today, hey, you know, you can do it tomorrow. And that's not, you know, it's a strange thing of being relaxed and not saying manana, manana and not getting things done. But if something slips through the net or, you know, you forget something or whatever, it's no big deal, you know, the, the world carries on. It's, it's not a, and I think that's part of it as well, is not to feel like your to-do list is a have to complete. I can easily in an afternoon or something like that, just have, have enough and go and sit and watch, you know, an hour of TV, which wasn't planned, but it's like, you know what, I've had enough for today, you know, and I'll, I'll go watch some tennis or, or some sport on TV. That's a skill to be able to, you know, control your mind and take control of your mind. It's not easy to do. People get caught up in these little, in these little things. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the reasons I developed Mindset College is I've had so much experience of, you know, especially young people. I'll just backtrack a little bit. You know, when I finished playing tennis and started coaching and it wasn't, I didn't stop and start coaching. I, I transitioned over a long period of time. I'd made a lot of mistakes as a player and I'd had very little, what I'd say, good guidance, you know, both as a player and as, as how to handle a career. And, uh, but I learned a lot just through trial and error. And as a coach, I always felt like it's my job to try and shortcut dumb mistakes that, that are easily avoidable if you just have a bit of knowledge. I also don't think it's right to try and cushion people from all mistakes because pain is a good, uh, a good teacher as well. In trying to become a very good tennis player, there is always going to be pain and you have to learn how to take the pain as well. But there are a lot of mistakes that are very easily avoidable and, and they just waste time. And Mindset College is a program that really take someone through the mindset that you need through the whole journey. And it's not just the on-court thinking, it's the off-court thinking as well. So, you know, I, I tackle things like expectations, judgment, comparison, how to communicate with, with, with a coach, how to communicate with parents, and, you know, what, what is the best communication style as a person, how to handle conflict, how to handle change. You know, when a kid's going to go to American college uh, from Europe, that's a big, big change in their life. So, yes, it's very exciting, but there's enormous change. But if they understand the change cycle, they can go there with far less stress because they understand what is coming up and what they're going to need to do in order to stay 
you know, level-headed and relaxed about the whole process. And the, and these are so important, you know, with professional tennis players, the higher you get, the more simple you can see the way they operate. They've got far less clutter in their brains. And, and that really helps. And that's because they have their off-court well-organized as well, you know, not just their, their on-court. And that, I'd say, you know, for Liam Brody, the last year has been a, a big transition in the way he does things off the court as much as the way he's doing things on the court. Maybe just explain a little bit more, like less clutter. What sort of clutter do less experienced players have in their head? A big one is a real obsession with uh, comparing themselves to others and ratings and rankings and all these things that on the surface make it look like you're doing well, you know. But in the end, actually, you just have to become a very good tennis player. And, you know, rankings are really only important to the point that you can get into tournaments, that you can actually play, play tournaments. If you can play tournaments, you're okay, because that's the breeding ground, that's the learning ground. The other thing is, you know, comparing themselves to others. Well, everybody has to run their own journey. And, I, you know, I wrote a book called Locker Room Power as well, and in there, I've got a chapter called Play to Gain. And if you think about, you know, your tennis path, think about it as, you know, ladders up a skyscraper. And you start, you know, in the beginning, you know, on the ground, really excited, you know, young kid, five, six years old, loving tennis. They improve quickly. They climb the ladder, a lot of energy, climb quite fast. And then suddenly, you know, you know, the little kid gets to like 10 meters and looks back, you know, mommy, daddy, oh, this is quite high. And they get a little bit scared, naturally. And so they start to climb a little bit slower because they, they, there's a little bit of fear there. That's natural. That's fine. They, you know, they get a little bit older, sort of the, you know, 11, 12 period, 10, 11, 12. And they suddenly start to be aware that they're not the only ladder in town. There's lots of ladders going up this building with lots of other kids on it. And they stop and they, they're looking up at the kids who are doing better and higher on their ladders. And then they look down, you know, with a bit of smugness that they're higher up the ladder. But the thing that they forget is while they're looking around at all these other kids, they're not focused on their own ladder. You can't climb the ladder without looking at the next rung. And it's really important that they start to climb rung by rung and not look around. Occasionally, you know, have a look and, and get a gauge of where you're at. No problem. But it's just a gauge. And then start climbing again. The other thing that I think certainly in, in British tennis, maybe it's same in Irish tennis, uh, it's getting less now, but there's a lot of pressure on time, sort of like how good you need to be at a certain age. and it starts to make time into a goal. And time is not a goal. Time is just there for motivation. So if you set a goal and you say, I'd like to achieve this by May, and you don't achieve it by May, people get really upset. Like the goal of May is more important than the actual goal itself. No, if you don't reach it by May, you, know, you just carry on say, well, end of June. And you don't reach by end of June, okay, end of July. 
you put the target there, you know, time target as a motivation to get up every day and, and work towards that goal. But it is not actually a goal. And it's a, the, the time stamp at the end is, is a goal that either you've invented or somebody else has invented. And if you can get your mind away from that nonsense and say, you know what, at the end of the day, you know, I just want to get to the top of the building. So, you know, if I get there a year earlier than somebody else or two years later or six years later, it doesn't matter. You still reach the top of the building. You know, is somebody going to say, it's a real shame. He only won his first Grand Slam or she only won her first Grand Slam at 31 years of age. Or are they going to say, wow, they won a Grand Slam. You know, once it's been done, then people are like, oh, wow, it's an amazing achievement. But at 26, 27, people are going, oh, they'll never win a Grand Slam. They'll never do whatever. But if you do it, then the time becomes irrelevant. So it's actually irrelevant until you just, you know, lose a yard of speed and just can't play professional tennis anymore. But this is not just about professional tennis. These are life skills that the, the you know, mindset college teaches that in anything, you can always recover from it. So, you know, people going into A-levels and obviously, you know, <laughs> there's a target there and the, and the time target is real. It's the end of the year exams. And, you know, you have expectations again of how you're going to perform. But let's say you don't do as well as you thought and you can't get into the university that you wanted and you decide to go a different route to another university. And there you meet an amazing friend and that amazing friend introduces you to other people. And one of them happens to be the owner of a fantastic I don't know, apparel company, and, and they really like you, and you come out of university, and they offer you a great job there, and you go down this path, and it's fantastic, and if you'd gotten the grades that you wanted, you'd be in a totally different place. Now, you know, people in comparison automatically assume that somehow the other life is worse or better, and the reality is it's just life. You just live it and live it and things happen and you make decisions to the best of your ability at that time. And if things don't go as you think they might, you bounce back and you don't know where that journey will take you. So you need to start getting excited about the adventure of not knowing. You know, I, I do believe in planning, but planning is just a guide and things happen. And if, you, if you're so rigid with your plan, often you... You miss the opportunity that can really change your life because you blink it. And it's like only this plan, only this plan, only this plan. And uh, th this is the thing that is really difficult to understand uh, when you're young is that you have to go all in. If you want to be a really good tennis player, you've got to go all in. But by going all in, you also have to release yourself from the outcome because all in doesn't mean you will be a pro tennis player it doesn't mean you know you will achieve this that and because there are other people trying to achieve these things as well so you need to fall in love with the adventure of you know what i like playing tennis i you know i love playing tennis so i'm going to just play tennis until i don't like it anymore and see where it lands up and you know Somebody called Roger Federer landed up with 20 Grand Slams. He didn't set out to win 20 Grand Slams. 
he obviously, as he got older, had an inkling that he was pretty damn good and probably would win one or two or three, you know, and then he's won 10. It's like, oh, well, maybe Sampras's record is on. Yeah, but he didn't know at the start that that's what he was going to achieve. He loved playing tennis and he still loves playing tennis. So comparing yourself to others in a way that is unhealthy is basically thinking that their life and because they're doing better, their life is better than yours. Their journey is better than yours. It may well not be. You don't know what's going on in people's lives. You don't know how happy they are with their journey, whatever is going on. I hope this all makes sense because that's quite a lot of stuff there. Getting back to your question, when you preoccupy your mind with all of this stuff, time goals, comparing, you know, imagine, imagine you, you, you know, you, you're 200 meters up this ladder, okay, and the wind is blowing and it's icy and rain. You're not climbing. You're clinging on for dear life, and that's what you should do. But nobody else in that weather is climbing. And these storms come, and you just hold on, and you're not improving. You're not getting better. And you have periods where you're just hanging on and just going through a really rough time. But you know what? The sun comes out again, and you can start to climb again. And then, of course, the fallacy is when you get to the top of the building that that's it. You just stretch and you go, oh, you know, I'm in this wonderful place. And then you look in front of you and there's another section of building that other people have started to climb <laughs> that you didn't know existed, you know, and, and, and so you start again. You know, and some people decide to settle at a certain height, which is also fine. You know, the, you know, the rules of the game of life are set by how you think in your head. When you really come to terms with that, you know, you can be happy as long as you know that you're doing things in a way that make you feel good. If I wasn't, you know, writing books, creating courses, you know, out there coaching, but when I'm coaching, I'm coaching. I'm not writing books while I'm coaching. You, you, you got to be focused on what you're doing. And that makes me feel good. You know, other people look at it and go, oh my God, you know, that's way too busy, but I enjoy it. But I also, you know, make sure that I have family time. And if I decide to, I'll just cut out two hours in the morning and go for a walk with my wife. You know, it's not planned, but you know what? It's a beautiful day. Let's go do it, which is exactly what I'm going to do after this podcast. Nice. Very nice. No, I think you make a lot of valid points really deep there, but really valid. And the whole thing about comparing yourself to others is not only a tennis thing, it's life. It's social media is where it gets called out a lot, where people are influenced for the wrong reasons. You know, it's very materialistic and people think they're not doing as well because either they're not as, they don't have certain objects or even rank it, you know, it's Rankin's tennis. Tell me, how did you get Liam to change his mentality? And secondly, I just want to add to that, is this like a sign of maturity that the players who can deal with this and move on are more mature players and hence why we see some players at 18, 19 who can compete at the top of the game? Let's say Sinner. He's probably the most extreme example at the moment where he's the most mature 18, 19, 20, 20. I don't know. I'm sure there's other players who are still lacking maturity at the top of the game. And if they could change that, the results would change. So is there a bit of truth there? Oh, 100%. I have a, a theory that to be a top tennis player, this is on the court. You need to be 28. Nadal was 28 at 18. Sinner is probably like 26 at 
at 19. They mature incredibly quickly on court. Part of it is it's kind of twofold. They obviously have you know extraordinary ability and and win a lot as young players. So they actually because if you win a lot, you're playing a lot more matches than people who, who lose earlier. So they you know it's a double whammy because they're getting more experience because they're winning a lot. That extra experience is maturing them faster. But whatever it is, their mindset gets settled a lot younger. And you know some people are 28 when they're 28. Others never get to 28, so therefore they, they, they don't actually get to the top of the game, like you said. You know, we've all met them. There's 50-year-old people that are incredibly immature and, and don't take responsibility for anything. They're, they're still, you know, in terms of maturity, like 22 in their, in their heads and they're, you know, over 50 years old. So maturity is not something that, that you just earn by the number ticking over and getting older. Maturity comes from really self-awareness, from thinking about things and, and getting your mindset in a place that is a lot more mature. The best players in the world are the most relaxed because their minds are so settled, they know what they've got to do and, they, and they've you know, done it for so long. It's, you know, it's a, re- a relaxed state for them. It's not anything abnormal. Young players breaking through are a lot more nervous. A lot they, they feel like they have a lot more to lose. There's you know all sorts of stuff again, clutter in the head that maybe prevents them from doing what someone like a sinner is doing, who has less clutter in his head. Everybody has clutter though. The, you know, the more mature you get, the better you manage it. And and it's really you know that that's the bottom line is the best players manage their clutter incredibly well. And because they do that, they have less clutter. I hope that makes sense. You, you know, you brought up something there, social media. Have you ever gone into a fancy restaurant and the waiter comes up and goes, you know, welcome to Synergy Steakhouse, one of the best in, in, in the world. But I tell you guys, honestly, if you knew how this place was run, it's a shambles. The guy who owns it, just a terrible person. Morale is on the floor. Honestly, we hate working here. Everybody's trying to get out. That doesn't happen. The front of this fantastic restaurant makes it look amazing. Everybody talks it up like it's amazing. But behind the scenes, it could well be a very poor environment. But that's not coming out on Instagram. Come to Synergy Steakhouse. Looks good from the outside, terrible on the inside. It ne- it's never going to happen. If you think of it, all social media is a, sh- is a shop window. And people put up and keep changing the shop window, trying to attract other people to come and shop with them or follow them. Nobody or very rarely does somebody put the truth out there. So when you're comparing yourself to anything on social media, you just have to be aware that you're comparing yourself to a myth. And the myth a lot is made up in your own head because you imagine because these people are, you know, sitting there on the yacht and everything like that, that they own the yacht and that they, they might hide the yacht for one hour to take all these photographs and, you know, and, and it took their life savings to do it. But it's a gamble. You don't know what's going on. And uh, it's amazing. I, I coach somebody online, very, very talented person, uh, a degree from Harvard, a top performer in New York City, and very unhappy. And that's because he took a time out to travel 
for for a couple of years. And when he came back to New York, he was further down the ladder than others who just kept working. And some of his peer group from Harvard, you know, were running for senator or, you know, high up in Apple or something like that. And he was just totally obsessed with how badly he was doing, which was incredibly well. And because his peer group were achieving so much. And I said to him, so how much do you know about this person who's high up? I think it was Apple or Google. I can't remember which one exactly. Well, you know, we went to university together. I said, so how much about his personal life do you know? Well, nothing really. Is he really happy with his life? You don't know. He could be on the verge of a nervous breakdown for all you know. You have no clue about his life. But in your mind, just because he's reached a status point in his job, that's it. He's got an amazing life. But that life is made up in your own head. You're imagining that, oh, if I was him in that position, life would be just amazing. Life might be terrible in that position. In fact, I know somebody who who, who worked very high up in, in Google and didn't enjoy it at all, actually, in Ireland. So you're comparing yourself to myths that you create in your own head. And that's why it's so destructive because you can never ever equal your imagination in terms of how well things are. We don't know, Bill Gates, billions, everybody all that. Oh, you got lots of money, lots of power, lots of everything. It must be great. How do we know? And let's be honest, not many of us are gonna get a chance to, <laughs> to experience you know, that level of, of money, but we don't actually know. And, the, you know, they've got to get up in the morning. They've got to eat. You know, they've got to do their run. If they're going to do a run, they, they've got to do their health stuff. They've got to do all the things that you do. And you know, one of the smartest things I ever heard was money just changes the venue. And that that is so, so true. Money just changes the venue. You know, the venue is your car, one person in a Lamborghini, one in a Vauxhall Astra, both cars, just different venues, you know, different. And so understanding that comparison is a myth and that you're going to start to enjoy your own journey and try to do the best that you can and do what makes you happy is the first step actually to achieve it, really achieving in life. Because whatever you do, there's always somebody who's going to do it better or, well, in terms of results. Doesn't mean they do their life better. They just might do Google better than you do Google. Or they, you know, what they might do tennis better than you do. But the other thing, I'm a big believer in humbleness. You know, if I'm ill, I don't want Serena Williams showing up as my doctor. Because as far as I know, she's not a doctor. So if I'm ill, I want a very good doctor showing up, not Serena. You know, if 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 my plumbing system is bad, I want a great plumber showing up. I don't want, you know, Simona Halep showing up with her coach to try and fix my plumbing. And so just because you happen to be very, very good at tennis doesn't mean you're good at everything in life. And, you know, that's the same for all of us. We're good at a couple of things, maybe extremely good at, at a one thing, but there's, you know, probably a trillion things out there that we're not good at. So, you, you know, for me, humbleness is actually being accountable and 
humbleness is waking up and saying, you know what, I need to do my best because I need to respect other people. And by respecting other people, I will try to give them my best. And that's all I can do. And by respecting myself, I will try to do the best for myself. And that to me is being humble. Humble is not, you know, going, oh, I'm not actually very good. You know, oh, thank you for saying I am. But, you know, it's not this, you know, if, if you think you're very good and you say you're not, that's not humble. And I just think that the description of humbleness, and I think, you know, Rafa Nadal really has this as a formula. You hear him before matches, you know, he's playing somebody on clay that really and truthfully is probably not going to lose. But you hear him in an interview, he goes, you know, he's a very good, you know, he's a very good player, great, great forehand. I have to be ready. I must be at my best because everybody is a good player, which is true. And he always prepares in the same way, which says, I'm going to bring my best to the court that I have on the day. And that's what you're going to have to beat. And he shows his respect to opponents by playing hard from point one to the end. And if that's a 6-1, 6-1 win, in his mind, he's showing his opponent respect. And he is, because he's showing his opponent what needs to be done. If you're going to get to my level, this is what it feels like. Now, that's the greatest compliment and help you can give to any opponent. But then you have you know people who say they're humble and everything. They go out there and they toy with a person and drop shot and lob and you know, mess around and when, you know, six, four and the third feel like, oh, you know, look how clever I am. Well, no, not really. If you could have won one and two, that's not very clever. And it's not very humble. You're not showing them respect. You're actually disrespecting them by saying, I can play at 80% of my ability and still beat you. That's arrogance in, in my book. No, no. So this this turned into a a one on one session. I feel now I'm getting a lot of good advice here. Uh, so no, it's really good stuff you're saying, Dave. It's all in mindset college. <laughs> it is. We'll send out the link. This was something we were going to get to the end of the chat. It's great that we got it to start. And but yeah, just applies in all areas of life. Really, there's no matter whether it's family, sports, business, all these same things. The same set of rules really apply and. It's obviously with lockdown now, it's been tougher for people. They're spending more time on their phone. They can't get as much exercise. I'm sure working from home, as good as it sounds, it's tough as well because it's good to get out. You miss the the water cooler chats. Like you can't talk about the football last night. Or, and, the, and I find that sort of, from a personal level, you sort of start losing interest in some things as well because, look, you're not talking about them. And you sort of, oh, how, where had the football go? I don't know because you've nobody talk about it. So that's what I feel. It's been a challenge. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. But just getting back to my question that started the last topic was with Liam, what, how did you make him more mature is probably the question. I mean, firstly, nobody can make someone else more mature. What I can only do, which is what we're doing now, 
is have conversations about different topics. A lot of coaching is done at dinner or lunch where something comes up and you start to talk about it and you ask challenging questions for them to think about. And that can speed up the journey because they think about it and then they start to change inside the way they think about certain things. So I would say that the the maturing process happened through some hard conversations that shifted his thinking in in certain things. And that, that really helped because off court, as an example, if I said to him, you know, before matches, not on your phone, okay, we'd have periods and he would do it. But he was not doing it because he wanted to do it or he felt that it was a benefit. He's doing it because I was making him do it. I'm making him do it so that hopefully he experiences the benefit. But when we got to the clay court season before the French last year, obviously the delayed French, uh, he said to me, match days, I'm leaving my phone in the, in the, in the hotel room. So don't try and get me by phone. I was like, hmm. That was him coming around to, you know what, let me try this maybe. Anyway, he had a good run and qualified for the French. Shoot forward to qualifying for Australia and Doha. And he was on his phone again a lot. And, and I, I said to him, you know, I think history shows that if you cut down on that, you know, it's better. Well, it's, you know, it's really tough. We're in the bubble, you know, all of this. And, and he was spending a lot of time on his phone. And two things hurt him there. That and the fact that he had qualified for the French in his mind, again, an expectation you know, it's a shame I didn't know this before the match, but in his mind, he expected it somehow to be a little bit easier to qualify for Australia than it did for the French because he qualified for the French. Now, you put these two little things together and it ended up with him just not being as sharp or I'd say being almost as hungry as he was at the French because a teeny weeny bit of entitlement had crept in, which is, Hey, I've qualified for the French. You know, don't play too hard against me in, the, in in Australia because it's I kind of deserve to have an easier ride this time. You know, and we spoke about this on the on on the plane ride back, and it was a very very valuable lesson because he won't make that mistake again. And this is the difference: is the the level of his listening and the discussion is much more a partnership now where we talk about it and he acknowledges a mistake and then becomes determined to to put it right. I'm not saying three years' time he might not go into a match expecting to win a little bit easy and then it, it, it bites him again, but it'll be very, you know, the distance between when it happens and when it happens again gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Because we're human, we all kind of can make mental errors. So, but... The, the difference is the getting back to the phone. Now he does it because he realizes the benefit and it's because he now wants to perform at his best and doesn't want to take chances with things that could possibly affect his performance. And, and that's the thing is when people get their off-court stuff right, it means that they're doing things. So a warm-up, 
you know, I see it all the time with kids. I mean, I've you know, coached so many, you know, kids over time and good, good kids as well. They do a warm up because they have to, but their mind is not there at all. You know, they think about the football, they think about dinner that night or whatever while they're doing. So they're not engaged. They're doing it, but they're not engaged. So that, you know, and that's the first step, just that they do it. But the next step is starting to get engaged and really be present and actually understand why they're warming up. They'll say they understand, but they don't really feel that how important a warm-up is. And that's not just the physical warm-up. It's taking themselves away, finding their ritual, their rhythm before a match that works for them. Now, coaches and parents, you know, obviously impose these rituals on them, which is, as I said, the first step. But speaking to them and trying to get them aware that it's not just doing it, it's how you do it that really, really counts. And that, again, is maturity. And if you could guess how long it's going to take your kid to mature, and in different things, they they grab it faster than others. And especially, you know, if, if they quite like something, there's more chance that they'll grab it than if they don't like it. But if they don't like it, but it's necessary, you know, eventually they will get it. But, you know, forcing someone to do something is is only one step in the process. Until they buy in, you don't tell them this, but it's almost not worth doing. It doesn't really matter. But once they buy in and do it with the right intent and the right focus, then, of course, it really starts to work. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And tell, just say to our, tell our listeners why people should not be on their phone, just cutting back to the phone. Like, what is the main reason behind it from your point of view? I'm not saying people don't be on the phone. No, <laughs> you know no, I mean? before we, match, yeah, yeah. in it. But... But I'd say use your phone for music, you know, before a match. You know, that's fine. And, and, and Liam now does do that. He uses the phone for music. And also, if he wants to be apart from everybody and takes himself off in preparing, he needs to have the, the score coming up so he kind of knows the, the timing. Uh, but that's all he'll use. It. He'll, he, he, you know, he'll uh, turn off all notifications from social media. Sometimes even during a tournament, he'll delete his social media all day and then reinstall it in the evening. Again, it's about clutter and about feeling. So let's say, you know, you're scrolling through, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it is, their, their, their flavor, and they see something, you know, a friend or an enemy or whatever that they don't like. Emotionally, they start to get involved with this post and it's like, and get a little bit angry or sad or whatever it is. And that changes mood and mood is, is, is important. You know, you, when you're going out there, you have to be, you know, calm, relaxed, but upbeat as well, you know? And, and if you, if you're irritated and you play irritated, we've all done that. You play irritated or you do something irritated. You don't do it as well. So that's one of the things. The other thing is sometimes is I, you know, and I have no proof of this at all, but I think, you know, like spending a half an hour just scrolling and, and, and looking at a screen and then kind of going out in the, you know, sunlight to play in that, uh, you know, I, I think it just, it, there's almost like a bit of fog in the brain and fog in the eyes that need to clear. And often in matches, the early opportunities are the easiest ones to take. And if you're in a bit of a fog, you don't even see the opportunities or you're not in a place to take them. So it's all about, 
you know, prepare, you're preparing your mind to go into battle. And honestly, I don't think many people would be on their phone if they were going into a genuine battle where people are going to shoot at them. I think they'd be very focused on how they're going to stay alive. So if you're talking about going into battle in a tennis match where you're going to need the same kind of focus as you're going to need to, to, to go into an actual battle, then, and you wouldn't do it going into battle because you want to be totally there. Why would you do it going into a tennis match, you know, or football match or any, anything, you know, or into a, an important meeting, you know, you, you, you got to get your mind clear, ready to go. And however long, some people it takes 10, 15 minutes. Other people have a very long routine, half an hour. You know, they, you know, they, they just really have to, you know, do some meditation, breathing, all sorts of things. You know, Marcus uh, is a very different animal to Liam. He has a, a long ritual, which starts when he wakes up in the morning. And, and Liam does too. But Marcus, before a match, takes a lot, lot longer to get himself in, in, in the right place because it suits him. And everybody has to find their tempo, their rhythm that suits them, that they know helps them perform the best. Does it mean you're always going to perform well? No, of course not. And that's the other thing is, you know, obviously young players, like, you know, they try something, it's like, oh, that didn't work because they didn't play well. Well, persevere. After three months, you'll start to find out what works and what doesn't work. And then you, and, and after three months, if you're really trying to figure out what's best for you, how long you should warm up for physically, how long mentally, uh, you're engaged in that process. You're actually improving then, you know, and, and, and it really surprises me always, you know, <laughs> parents will spend thousands of pounds on tennis lessons or football lessons, whatever it is. And that's physically learning how to play the game. And of course, you know, coaches will touch on stuff mentally, but then they won't spend, I don't know, you know, 600,000 pounds on getting mental coaching. Yet everybody will say, oh, at the end of the day, it's all in the mind. <laughs> well, if it's all in the mind, surely that's actually the first thing you start coaching. Yeah, good point. You know, it, 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 it's nuts. I mean, who would go into a tournament and not, and not hit a ball for a week? But people go into a tournament without thinking about their, their, their mindset, not just for a week, for months. You know, they just don't. But as they get higher and understand this better, they get much, much more aware of how important the mind is. And I'll just clarify that thing is at every level, the mind's the most important thing, but it's not all in the mind. You have to get better as a tennis player. So it doesn't matter, you know, and the story I tell is, it, it, you know, if you took Rafa Nadal, who's mentally very, very tough, as we know, and dropped him five miles from the North Pole in a shorts and T-shirt and said, walk to the North Pole, and he's really tough, he might get 500 meters before he, he ha you know, it starts freezing and freezes to death. Somebody else who dropped there, oh, my God, it's so cold, I can't do this, and dies on the spot. The reality is even Rafa needs the equipment in order to make that tough journey. So as you go up the levels, you're gaining the equipment you need to go to the next level, which is getting better as a tennis player. But that is both physical, you know, technically and mentally. And once you get to a certain level, then it becomes a battle of the minds because 
the 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 technical expertise, the tactical expertise in that. Pretty much every everybody has, you know, at that level a similar expertise. That's why they're there. But you know, then it starts becoming a battle of the mind. And and if you've not been training your mind that well and you're behind in that place, it's going to take you longer to get through that level because your mindset has to get to the right place. And that's why players get stuck at I think sometimes at certain levels. It's because they play very good tennis, but their mind is stuck in a place that's not allowing them to progress further. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned Marcus there. You work with Marcus Daniel. We had him on the podcast about, I think, five episodes ago. Great chat with him. Really loved it. And he talked a lot about high-impact athletes, which you are now, a, you're a part of, technically. But we'll get on to that in a sec. He did say, I spoke to him the other day, and he says, you got to say, ask Dave, what is the chapel of bullshit? <laughs> well, that's very nice of him. Uh <laughs> But it also shows how much he, he values, you know, helping other people. The chapel of bullshit happened at Nottingham Tennis Center. And, you know, it was at a, a 10,000 futures. And when Marcus started with us at Bath, I mean, he had some fantastic excuses. He had excuses for everything. You know, I remember one of the first emails I ever got from him. <laughs> was <laughs> I, I think he was in I don't know Thailand or something like that. And he goes, "Yeah, I felt really good going onto the court, really, really good." And we started off, and and uh, you know, the guy held serve, you know, but I, I almost broke him. Feeling good, went out there. Anyway, got down thirty forty, serve and volleyed, hit a really good volley, and the guy hits a bending forehand pass, unbelievable. And it lands on the line. And I knew there and then it wasn't my day. <laughs> Two love in the first set. So that's where his mind was, you know, that would get so disappointed so quickly that, okay, well, you know, I'm feeling good. Two love down. You know, the guys hit a lucky shot. It's just not my day. You know, this goes on for probably close to a year. Uh, you know, obviously having different chats and everything like that. But at Nottingham, I sat him down after a terrible match where he was mentally really bad. Uh, and, and, and I said, look, Marcus, you want to be a good tennis player? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. So that's interesting. I said, from my point of view, you will never be a tennis player while you worship at the Chapel of Bullshit. I said, what are you talking about? I said, the Chapel of Bullshit. He goes, what is that? I said, well, you know, they should call it a stadium of bullshit because the chapel of bullshit is huge and it's where all the people with loads of excuses go to worship. And they worship in the chapel of bullshit and they worship their own bullshit. They love to believe their own excuses. And that's where you live. And until you leave the chapel of bullshit and go worship at the chapel of getting better, you will never be a player. And I thought that that would either not sink in or sink in so hard that he'd maybe leave. You know, and, and obviously we, we chatter around a lot of the excuses and stuff as well. But he started to engage with that. And from that day on, different person, turning point in his career. Uh, stop buying into all 
the excuses stop making excuses. I mean, <laughs> he did go through a little period where he said, this is not an excuse, it's just a, a really valid reason. <laughs> okay. Now, these are the facts of what happened. I said, oh, I said, are you getting really sophisticated? I said, you've now graduated from the chapel of bullshit to the sophisticated masterclass of bullshit, which is the reasons chapel. <laughs> and, and of course, then he started to come away from that and became more and more responsible for his own game and what happens out there and and then the resilience and the robustness. And, you know, now Marcus is, is mentally very, very good. And, and we have some great conversations around mentality, you know, because he's been as high as 33 in the world. And I think he's going back there at, at the moment. It's going very, very well. Uh, but the aim is to go top 20, you know, and, and, and see what he can do at top 20 and maybe, you know, top 10 one day. And, and who knows? You just keep getting better. But part of that getting better is the discussions we have on mentality because it's a different mentality at every level. And you have to you know, get fitter and fitter mentally so that you can compete at higher and higher levels. And, you know, I think it was McEnroe, it was McEnroe said, and there's a great saying is, you know, the hardest jump I ever had to make was from two to one. And if you think about that, that makes a lot of sense because when you're young and climbing that ladder, it's easy to climb. You improve so fast. The higher and higher you get, the wind, the rain, all this, you know, and, and the fear of falling, you know, you're going to climb a lot, lot slower. And then the difference between number one and number two is probably, you know, a millimeter. But you're going to have to do the same amount of work as, and maybe more work to bridge that millimeter, because you know learning the the, the teeny weeny margins between that are so hard to learn because they're so subtle that 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 is probably the you know that would be the hardest jump. And why wouldn't it be? Because the formula doesn't change. You always have to get better to go up, and that's what I'd say to to parents and young players focus on just getting better put time targets there if you want but don't get caught up in and and you know overly disappointed or whatever if you don't hit your target because you know what just keep going and you will hit the target and sometimes you hit the targets early sometimes late it's actually almost impossible to hit it exactly on the day you know so so you're aiming again for a myth you're actually going to hit the target either before or after. But you have the confidence that if you just keep getting better, you know, and I have this saying, which, you know, is in my book, Locker Room Power, is you do the work and good things will happen. You just don't know when. You know, you just work on getting better. And and when other people say, oh, you know, you know 21 and only ranked 800, uh, you know, hey, if you're enjoying it and you feel you're getting better, Keep going because good things will happen. You just don't know when. And what those good things are, again, we don't know. You know, if you could predict right now what's going to happen to Marcus Daniels' career, you know, at, at 40 in the world right now, by the end of his career, exactly what's going to happen and what he's going to achieve and not achieve, okay, I give you, you know, a billion pounds. I can I name any, any number because nobody's going to predict that correctly. 
things will happen, good and tough things and disappointing things. You know, he's been in three quarterfinals of slams now. He might never make another quarterfinal again. I don't believe that's the case, but he might never make a semifinal or final. But you know what? If you keep getting to quarterfinals, you know, you're giving yourself chances to, to make semis or finals or win. But can we predict that that will definitely happen? No. But what you can predict is that he's going to keep trying to get better. And where that takes him, great. That's really that mentality of just saying, you know, I want to get better. I'm going to keep trying to get better. And, you know, as long as I enjoy it, I'm going to keep doing it. That sets people up for actually the most success. It's a bit like the whole you make your own luck thing where, you know, you stick around, you put yourself in the best possible position. Chances will appear before you. And if you've done the right things and you capitalize, you've got lucky, but you've put yourself into that position. So uh, I completely agree with you there. I have one last question for you, Dave, here. It's on Feder actually, and it's on pressure. Do you think with him, he's come to the end of his career, be it this year, next year, the year after, we don't know. And... Obviously, Novak and Rafa have, well, Rafa's on his case now. Novak is coming in hard with his Grand Slam uh, records. And Federer's, you know, he's built his legacy on being the guy with the most Grand Slams. Now these guys possibly going to overtake him. Do you think he's feeling more pressure than he's ever felt to compete at a Grand Slam moving forward? Um, I mean, I can't speak for Federer, but I can speak for my opinion. I would say no. You know, Federer is a very bright guy. And, you know, be, being the greatest tennis player is an argument that will rage all through time. You know, and we sit here and how many people remember Pancho Gonzalez? Not many. But there are people who say Pancho Gonzalez is the guy you'd want playing for your life that, you know, had he not turned pro in 1955, he would have won countless slams. You know, there's a lot of records that he still holds. The most wins against top 10 players in his era. You know, the most wins in his era, uh, but the most wins ever. In in 100 years' time, believe it or not, it's hard here to think that way, but Federer will be in, you know, 50 years' time. Federal will be in the same place that Pancho Gonzalez is. A few people who are really into tennis will know that he was a great player, that Rafa was, that Novak were, and, and you know, their records will be there to say that they were. But nobody's really going it, to – it'll be about the players of the moment. And I think Fedra loves playing tennis, and he would love one last hurrah to maybe win one more Wimbledon or obviously – you know, if he wins one, he's going to think he can win another one. <laughs> so it might be, you know, two or another U.S. Open or whatever. But he, he, he knows it's coming to the end. And I think he will be looking back on his career and know that he did everything that he could. And he kept him reinventing himself and improving. And, and the fact that, you know, maybe two guys in the end pass him you know, there'll be a little bit of nostalgic disappointment. But then it's like, hey, I never thought I'd achieve probably half of what I achieved. So it's been a great, great ride. 
And, and I think actually he will be enjoying the slams more than ever. And he's always been a player who's been phenomenal with pressure, being able to kind of enjoy the whole status and the whole thing about it. Uh, I certainly think that he he will be pretty chilled and relaxed going into these and actually fascinated to see how well he can do. And I think that's an important thing is a curiosity is, you know what, <laughs> you know, at my age, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, let's see what I can do and be curious and fascinated about what he still can do because he doesn't know what he can still do. And, and and I think, again, he's on this adventure and he doesn't know, you know, he, he knows far more than, than he did where it's going to land up, but he still doesn't know what the end looks like. And, and I think he, he will stay in that place of fascination as to what he still can achieve. And, and therefore that will make him actually very relaxed because I think he'll, he'll want to enjoy his one, two, three, whatever years he's got left relaxed and, and hoping that he's dangerous. Yeah. You know, believing that he's dangerous, but he won't know until he's out there. Yeah. Yeah. No, th- thanks. Thanks for your, I just want your opinion on that. It's very interesting. But, uh, Dave, thank you very much for coming on here. That was really interesting. As I said, I thought it was a bit of a one-on-one counseling session for me. I felt I took a lot from it. So hopefully our listeners did too. But where can people find out more about, importantly, the Mindset College and about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, my website, davidsamuel.com or mindsetcollege.co.uk. Um, or otherwise, you know, just uh, hook up with me through a direct message on Instagram or, or Twitter or, you know, I'm, I'm not a big uh, uh, social media person at all. I, I, I've got uh, an introduction from Marcus to somebody who's, who's, who's helping on that side. So hopefully, it, 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 you know, it, well, I'm, I'm sure it, it is getting better. But yeah, or just email me, you know, at david at mindsetcollege.co.uk. Uh, happy to to field any questions or anything. I love tennis. I love uh, mindset because I know how important it is. And, and I really enjoy engaging with people. And, and, and if I can somehow shift a perception that makes their life more fun and easier, uh, that gives me a lot of pleasure. And are we going to have you on for a webinar? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, very happy. And I hope I didn't, you know, talk too much and you got enough questions in. Uh, you kind of set me off early and I, I kind of rolled with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we skipped by the whole, your tennis career and all the countless players you worked on, but I think we hit the important stuff. And the less talking I do, the better. So that's how I see a successful podcast is the less I speak, the better the episode. So you did a great job, I know already. So thanks a lot. Yeah, we hope we get you on the webinar. And yeah, thanks. Can I say one last thing to to any parents on this program and young players? Whatever length you think the journey is, it's longer. Because when you get to a certain target that you think is wonderful, when you get there, it'll seem quite sort of normal and immediately you'll set your sights on the next next target. So if you want to play really good tennis and you have aspirations of being a pro, if you're a good junior, I would advise still to go to a university or college and 
have a maturing process. Remember, if you go to an American college, you can always cut out if you're doing extremely well. And Cam, Cam Norrie did three years and then cut out. You know, McEnroe did a year and cut out. You know, he made semis of Wimbledon, which helped that decision. Uh, but, but the fact is, you know, it's a great place, university, to mature as a person and, uh, you know, get, get that team atmosphere around you and to improve without the same pressure. Of, and, and the futures are a rough place to live in. You know, it's it's not great venues, uh, tough hotels. Sometimes it's it's a it's a really tough environment. And to go there when you're very very young, after the ITF Junior Tour, where you're pretty well looked after, is a is a rude shock. And and sometimes the the shock will create a lot of losses and a lot of scar tissue that I think is unnecessary. Whereas if you you know there's some good you know, UK universities now with decent programs, uh, Bath being one of them, or an American university, you have the time to mature as a person and improve your game and your skills in a very safe and 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 good environment in terms of facilities and everything like that. And, you know, added bonuses if you have a good coach, but you get a lot of matches in. And these days it's a, it's a lot better because – you know, people can take off a fall and 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 play futures while they're still at university, uh, and and it's it's a good route to take. The journey, you know, if if people go, oh, you know, I'm eighteen or nineteen, I'll give it a year and see how it goes. Don't give it a go then, unless you, if you're eighteen and you want to give it a go, say okay, you know, I'll give it a go for six years and then I'll decide. It's a very long journey, so don't put these unrealistic pressures in there like you know at 18 you know give it a go for a year and and i'm not saying i mean if you're, you're a sinner of course it can happen very very fast but there are not that many players that can achieve that much that young you know average probably i mean if you look at somebody like a dan evans it was only from 25 26 where he really started to kick on uh and and now he's top 30 in the world you know so you know he had a lot of uh a lot of stuff going on before that and and the results were not equal to his talent because his maturity wasn't there you know what are people saying now dan shouldn't have done it <laughs> you know or he could have done it younger he could have done it younger but he wouldn't be the person he is now if he had done it younger he might have done a lot more younger and then fallen off the rails and 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 only gotten 60 in the world you know and that's the thing about the journey it's your journey and it's the best journey you're going to ever have because it's yours and it's unique. And enjoy it. Sorry, went off again. <laughs> Thank you. No, thanks for that. Uh, yeah, so we'll hopefully have this webinar soon uh, and also enjoy the walk and enjoy your trip to, where'd you say you're going? I'm going to Belgrade. Yeah, that was great, Dave. Enjoy the trip to Belgrade. Thank you very much. I really hope you enjoyed that chat with Dave. As I said during the chat i really enjoyed it i got a lot from it i personally thought of it as a one-on-one -on -one session i hope you did too and you gained something let me know what you gained from it the most but the webinar with david free webinar will be on the 27th of april at 4 p.m london time head over to functionaltennis.com to our webinar section and rsvp it's free there's going to be even more to be learned 
and also all Redstones we will send out a replay within 24 hours so thank you very much and until next week goodbye